I'm unbelievably happy to have Mitch Dalton on Musicians Funnies. I was hoping that you'd be in the nude, but since you're wearing a t-shirt, then I won't be able to worry about uh, that. As you know, for money, anything can be arranged, but as there's no money, nothing can be arranged. That is true, that is true. <laughs> but, you know, we go out to at least 5,000 people and they're all, they're all oh. going to love you. Wow, 5,000. You know this, when you're trying to put forth something which is vaguely intelligent, you know, you, you've got the tiny audience. When you, if, if this was all tits and ass and fart jokes, we would have a huge audience. I'd, I'd have millions, literally millions. And, and yes. I would be actually able to pay for keeping this, this yeah, channel. So, so much for what you get up to in your private life. I don't think this is really the stuff for a family. No, audience. it isn't. I mean, but not yeah. only that, you're a guy who's made me laugh probably more than anybody else. And especially and that's, that's, that's after I put pick up the guitar. That's <laughs> well after or before, um, before the gig. But but that is my only possible segue, which you've destroyed into the fact that this is musicians funnies where people tell amusing stories about what happened to them when they were trying to make a living. Yes. So, well, you've raised, I know if I may just interpolate, interject into anything. Go ahead. Um, what, um, you raised almost a serious point there because I've thought about this uh, long and hard after the event, you know, yeah. over the, after, with time to reflect, but I have reached the not particularly revolutionary conclusion, but nevertheless, it's mine that um, a lot of musicians' humour is just you know, it's protection against the vagaries of the incredibly insecure and unremittingly cruel world that the music profession can be, which is not a standalone item because most um, self-employed uh, um, occupations have a great deal of that. But there's something particularly horrible about um, that side of um, the human activity of working when it applies to music, because of course, it's deeply personal. You play a musical instrument and some part of your psyche is exposed to the world. It's like, it is like taking your clothes off metaphorically in public. And then, you know, who knows what's gonna happen. And I think that the particular type of musician humor, the typical kind of musician's humor um, is an attempt to deflect and to protect and to conserve, you know, really the, uh, the structural integrity of the person without them falling apart, because it's a tough old game, as you know. Indeed. That's all I have to say on the matter. Bye-bye. Yeah, well, See you next But, but in, in fact, you know, that also raises, I don't mind when musicians' funnies get serious, and, and you've raised something that I, I talked about in my book, which is the fact that being <laughs> a ranger, which just happens to be here just by accident, yes, absolutely. I don't see the um, I don't see the recommended selling price. That's the only thing that's no, missing. No, no, that's going to be that's going to be dubbed on. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, arrangers. I talk about arrangers in this book, and and I talk about the yeah. difficulty of explaining to even to musicians, but certainly to non-musicians, what on earth an arranger is. Now, the same thing applies in terms of you're a guitar player and you're in a club and you're playing some quite sophisticated music and somebody from the audience walks up to you and starts saying, oh, it's a nice jacket. Where'd you get that? Well, you know, as if- what That's one of the best, by the way, I must tell you, that is one of the best Australian accents I've ever heard. <laughs> Every time I try to do a Cockney accent. Everybody says yeah. it's it's Australian. So now when I when I tell people, I say I can't do a Cockney accent. I can only do an Australian accent, and they say, "Oh, it's perfect." And then then I have to use some of the expressions like "scoof my," but but that doesn't. Well, really I have to tell you. I mean, if this is <laughs> at this point. Um, uh, you've um, identified, you know, something which is a truism, but I, I've had that. Um, exact experience on numerous occasions but very early on I had the uh, classic one of standing by the side of the stage on a break playing in the Dorchester Hotel where I had a residency for a while six nights a week where I really I went to school quite honestly that's where I, I really learned to play but that's a whole other story it's a fantastic experience six nights a week eight till one o'clock in the restaurant playing all sorts of stuff but I remember coming back and waiting to go on 
and um, a member of the public, shall we say, one of the yeah. diners approached me and I actually thought in my naivety and utter stupidity that they were approaching me to perhaps throw a compliment my way because I thought, oh yes, I am playing quite well tonight. They want to say something about my playing. And they just said, can I have another gin and tonic, please? Exactly. <laughs> well, you were wearing a, probably a black jacket and a tie. I was wearing a tuxedo. That's, that's <laughs> it. That's the end of it. Yes. Um, but, but the thing that amazes me, man, and I know you understand this as well as I do, they don't have any idea about the, the um, amount of work and skill that goes into what you're doing. So they think you're playing and this is one of the tragedies of the word playing music the expression oh, play. they think it's just kind of fooling around and that you can yeah. carry on a conversation while you're playing all the things you are at a burning tempo i don't know whether you've ever seen the uh, amazing um video of ted green playing at i think is either a wedding or something equivalent right he's just sitting there there's one camera on him i don't know have right. you ever seen it i have seen it yes and He's actually talking to somebody that comes up to him while he's playing this ridiculous guitar. Yeah. Um, and he's perfectly calm and very reasonable because obviously he's, he's experienced this humiliation countless times and he's yes. just water off a duck's back. But the fact that he can even do it, let alone the what uh, lies behind it, the ignorance and the, uh, and the total and utter, you know, lack well, of appreciation. Lack of respect. I mean, there's a lot of respect among the general public for certain kinds of professions. I don't think you'd ever think of walking up to a doctor, for instance. I know you know a lot about the doctor profession. You know, no one, no one would walk up to a doctor while he's operating and say, oh, have you got change of a fiver? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just they wouldn't dream of doing it, but they'll do it to a musician. The other thing is they have no idea of the amount of work and I'm talking about years, at least 10 years of very hard work to get to the point where you can play in the Dorchester Hotel or even you can play in the local pub. It's well, it takes, a hell of, yeah, it takes a hell of a lot of study and years of sacrifice to reach the stage where you can be comfortably ignored playing in a restaurant in the West End. <laughs> For a small Great amount of money. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. But the, the, you're absolutely right. Of course you are. And it, it's a strange thing, as you say, you've alluded to the fact that uh, the verb to play um, yes. is possibly confusing to um, people. And of course, um, I think this is more prevalent in the United Kingdom than it is in America. I think there's a little bit more respect, or there was in the States. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking rubbish. Maybe the other man's no, back is... Yes, I think it's more the other man's because it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. I mean... Uh, no one has any idea, certainly non-musicians have any idea, and even musicians, uh, people who call themselves musicians, don't really have the idea of what it is, because there are also, as you well know, uh, probably of all the musicians in the world, there's maybe 10% of them who are very uh, hardworking, studied people who have devoted their entire lives to it. And there are then another 90% of people who, you know, know how to go down to the pub and play a, a rousing sing-along and, and, uh, and that's about it. Mm. Well, it doesn't help, of course, um, by uh, acknowledging, which we have to do, the fact that um, there is no real correlation between talent and success. I mean, it's very, very random. I mean, you can have fantastically talented geniuses that are highly successful and you can have complete bums that are totally unsuccessful. Correct. But I'm afraid spectrum and all the way along that spectrum, there's a wide variety of people, mediocre musicians who hit it really big, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Non-musicians who hit it big and make a fortune. There's no, there is no telling, which is, I suppose, the beauty of it. I mean, and as to the chagrin of what we used to call record companies before they disappeared. Oh yeah. Nobody knows what the, nobody knows what the public is gonna go for next. Um, and if they did, it would be a piece of cake, wouldn't it? What, the, what they very, very rarely uh, want the public is uh, a recreation of what went before, which is where a lot of, you know, so-called A&R men, and I use these uh, virtually obsolete terms now, but yes. you know, looking for the next Elton John or looking mm -hmm. for the next Rod Stewart, there won't be a next Rod Stewart, there'll be something completely different. Well, um, so course, you don't know. 
to that point, to that point, the the uh, record labels uh, and and uh, the industry has very cleverly taken the public out of the equation because it used to be that the public could choose the next big thing because they would yeah. get a chance to hear it on the radio. They would be able to go down to the old bull and bush and hear some fantastic band playing and they'd tell their friends and more and more people would, you know, they'd be able to build up a, a following from, from playing. Yeah, well, no. Today, yeah. that doesn't exist. And not only that, uh, new artists uh, are very, very rarely, if ever signed. Uh, everything is is to, and also the means. I mean, radio is completely controlled. Uh, this whole business of streaming. I don't want to get into it, but what I do want to get into, I'm going to veer this whole lovely conversation around to a musician starting out. Now, when you were starting out, and I'm going, oh, to, yeah. I'm going to force you to tell this story. When you were starting out, you worked for a band leader in a kind of a general business kind of band that played warning yes. and Yes, and that was the, the to me. This is the most. This, first of all, it's the funniest story I've ever heard. Funniest, and secondly, it's the most telling story. But please tell the story. Well, if I could remember the band leader's name, I would have no hesitation whatsoever in 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 uh, in naming him, even if it's uh, just call him Ivor Biggin. Okay, I, I'll do. I'll do that. Well, I got a call to Depp in this band. And I, it was, as you say, you call it a general business band here, we call it a dance band. Yes. You know, I, I think it was one of those, you know, do's where you turned up and you played some polite music for, in the background for dinner, some bossa novas, very tasteful. Yes. And then afterwards you play basically a load of rubbish for people to dance to of different genres, but, uh, yes. you know, and as the evening wore on uh, and more and more alcohol was consumed, not by the band, but by the uh, the general public and the guests. Um, so the quality of the music would deteriorate in direct proportion until we were playing um, drivel. Um, but that's the way of, anyway, I did my best and uh, I seemed to not get sent home when we took a break and everything seemed very, to go swingingly well in that respect. And I packed up at the end and this guy came up to me at the end and he said, listen, thanks so much for stepping in at the last moment, you know, because when Joe you know, went down with the flu last night, I did not know what we were going to do. Anyway, you've come in and done a great job. And I've got to say, it just shows you, it doesn't pay to book the best musicians. <laughs> love it, love it. And it there, was another, there was another funny thing about this guy that you told me, that when you were doing gigs for him, he would send you very detailed, sometimes five or six pages of directions. And when you got there, there would be a diagram of the of the place and where all the plugs were. I remember it now. It's Les Tobe. His name. That's well, it. Les That's Tobe. it. Les. He's a lovely bloke, actually. He's he's still around. He's not uh, doing anything in music, um, but he was. Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, he he liked a, a touch of control. Um, yes, and he, I and think. Trees and wood spring to mind, and not and and visual acuity. Indeed. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I yes. just always remembered that story. It doesn't always pay to book the best. I mean, it's just yeah. classic. Uh, it was completely thick-skinned, of course. You see, he didn't he didn't realize that how you know how insulting that was. Well, you know, a knife, a dagger, straight to my heart. You know, <laughs> um, and he was an actual band leader. So, but you were young. You know, this was at yeah. the beginning of your career. On the studio scene, I had something ex extremely similar. You know, I was, you know, when I started, you know, which is of historical interest actually, because I I managed to do all sorts of things which are not available for today's musicians to do because they don't exist. And that's where you cut your teeth, and that's where you go to college. Really, uh, you don't learn it doing studio work, what you do in studio work is give everything that you've learned mm -hmm. to the session and you have it drained out of you. And you, your job is to keep keep fresh and keep coming up with new ideas, but you don't learn anything on a session right. except how to pray you won't make a mistake. But um, all these um, other um, experiences, you know, they all funnel in to making you um, what you are and you get and you gain experience and versatility but you know so I started off doing all these different things including dance bands I played in strip clubs all kinds of things and they've all closed there you can't learn any of it because it's not there but I remember a similar experience 
when I was starting to do a few sessions, it would have been around the same time as Liz Tobe. So it's a direct comparison. I got a call from a lady who was a, a fixer or a contractor, as you would say. And um, she rang up and said, Mitch, 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 oh, I'm glad you're in. Do you play the electric sitar and do you have one? And uh, I said, well, and before I could answer, she said, please say you can, because I've tried Alan Parker, Paul Keogh, Chris Ray, and she reeled off 20 names. Right. She tried. And I just felt, hmm, well, nice to be wanted. <laughs> I yeah. was obviously literally at the bottom <laughs> of this list of people, but she had no problem whatsoever in telling me. She didn't sugarcoat the pill. Right. You know, because it was her trouble that she had gone to of calling all these people that was important to her, not your yeah. feelings. Oh, no, absolutely. You don't have feelings, you know. Yeah. And uh, it gave me a certain amount of pleasure to say, I'm terribly sorry, I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. I don't have, so, you know, and it, was, it wasn't a, a fit of pique. I just didn't. So that's, that was fun. But uh, she, well, to, to bless her, she did come out with some fantastic phrases. Uh, she used to, um, I suppose we call them malapropisms. She would, yes. um, she would, she would uh, mix, her, uh, mix her proverbs. And I remember one time when something had gone wrong, and she was, uh, it wasn't my fault, she wasn't, she was just relating this tale of woe to me down the phone while we were no doubt discussing my invoice, which was yes. almost too much. But um, I remember her saying, oh, well, you know, we got through the day and it's all over now and it's all water under a duck. Oh, <laughs> 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 water under a duck, well. It's beautiful. I'm yeah, well, I'm glad that. you're telling that story on the web. Oh, sorry. Oh dear me! That was unnecessary. I know. Okay. It was well. It's gratuitous. I felt. I felt. But nevertheless. But but I'd like you now. I'd like you now to beak in to tell one of the many other funny things that have happened to you in your incredible musical life. Well, there are quite a number, and I have to be honest with you. This is my favorite because okay. it's just very special to me. I worked with Henry Mancini or Hank Mancini for a number of years and he, he took a shine to me and when he came to um, Europe he asked for me and I did a lot of very nice things with him and one of the things I did in fact was a Japanese tour and uh, it was tremendous you know anything to do with Henry Mancini I was just it was just a totally wonderful experience a master musician an amazing composer and one of the driest wits you'll ever experience but anyway that's the background. Well, we flew into Japan to meet him. We met him in Osaka. They very wisely, if you don't know whether you know too much about or your audience will know too much about touring in Japan, but what you don't want to do is fly to Tokyo because you'll be there the rest of your life trying to get from the airport into the city. I so do, yeah. we flew to Osaka. We were actually, uh, we flew first to South Korea because the band uh, had some concerts which were nothing to do with Hank Mancini. And for reasons of practicality and economy, they took myself and the tenor saxophone player, a marvellous player called Ray Worley. Oh, sure. They took us with them and we did nothing for a week except mess about in Seoul and buy terrible Rolex bootleg watches for $10 and just generally have a very good time and yeah. try to avoid unintentionally eating dog for lunch. <laughs> but apart from that, it was, it was great. And uh, we then flew straight into Osaka and there is the great man waiting for us in the hall, beautiful concert hall, and we start to rehearse. And it's all great, it's a fantastic orchestra, and uh, he's great. And at this point, I knew him quite well. So it was, uh, you know, I wasn't under any sort of great pressure, you know, with nerves or anything like that. Anyway, we get to this point when he says, uh, Who's uh, playing the, uh, where's the piano? And, oh, it's over there. Uh, listen, uh, could you at this point, we do a section called Ballads by Mancini, and I'd like you to slide surreptitiously off, stand by the side of the stage, and I will leave the podium and sit at the piano. And I'll play solo. You just have to sit there. Which he then proceeds to do. And uh, he rips out one heartbreaking, fantastic song after another. And you just melt as this master is in front of you giving a free concert. He plays them all, Mr. Lucky Charade, you know, the lot. And I'm just thinking, I am such a lucky boy just to be sitting here, just listening to this. And then he says, and this will be the finale of the concert. And what I'll do is I will cue the band at the end of uh, Days of Wine and Roses. And um, we're into Moon River and we're out of here. The audience will go nuts and that'll be it. 
Brilliant. Now then, Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, who's the uh, plays the jazz sax here? And it was Ray. And Ray is Australian, by the way. And he said, yeah, uh, "Indeed, oh, it's me. It's me, Hank." Said, oh, "Great, marvelous." Um, I tell you what, um, you'll stand when I cue you. You'll play one chorus of Days of Wine and Roses. I'll accompany you, and then I'll cue Moon River, and then we're out of here. Great. Look, look. Uh, I think we need to take the break, so we'll take the break. So Ray comes up to me in the break and he says, hey, listen, there's no music here. Um, there's just the title of the song here. Uh, there's no melody written out. Do you know it? I said, well, I do, yeah. I do know Days of Wine and Roses. And he says, let's just go through it. And we go through it for 10 or 15 minutes in the break and we come back. So Hank comes back and he says, right, where were we? Oh, yeah, uh, Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, uh, Ray, is it? Could you stand? Thank you very much. And play. Bang. And Ray doesn't know the tune. So he plays beautiful player, beautiful, beautiful player. And he just he just improvises, you know, lovely. Anyway, after eight bars, Hank stops and he says, Ray, you're a great player, man. I can tell. Beautiful. But we're in Japan. My audience just want to hear the tune. Could you just play the tune? I don't care how you phrase it. Put your stamp on it. It'll be great. I can tell. And Hank goes, I'm really sorry, uh, Hank. For some reason, there's no there's no music here. I don't have the melody, but I'll write it out before the uh, the concert tonight. It'll be fine. Uh, but I, I, you know, uh, it's not here. So at this point, Hank Mancini turns to the audience, to the orchestra, with an absolutely wicked expression on his face, totally straight faced, with innocent eyes, and he goes, "You don't know Days of Wine and Roses? Huh. It's kind of a standard." <laughs> and I thought, wow, to Fantastic. be in that position, to be able to say truthfully about your own music. Yes. Standard, man. You know, everybody <laughs> exactly. knows that. Exactly. Uh, it's, uh, that's my favorite story of all time. It just it's... sort of sums up on so many levels. It sums up so many things. I don't know yes. why, but it really appeals to me. But I mean, where do you start? The mad things that happen. I mean, I can tell you, um, in terms of insanity, one of the craziest things I ever did, I did a, uh, the diary service took a job which I didn't want to do. Um, they, they, they rang me and they said, they've got, uh, we've got um, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra have rung and we've taken it on for you. Um, it's uh, Rhapsody in Blue um, on banjo. And I said, yeah, that's oh, all nice. right. Now, let's get something straight here. You said BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. And the diary said, yeah, it's a prom. It's at the Albert Hall on the Tuesday night. But there'll be rehearsals. There's two or three days of rehearsals. And it's a TV show and blah, 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 blah. I said, stop. The first, where's the rehearsal? You haven't mentioned it. Oh, that's in Glasgow. I said, right. So you're going to expect me to fly to Glasgow, rehearse, come back go back to London, do the Albert Hall, just to rehearse. And they said, well, that's, yeah, that's where they're based. I said, I know that, but you shouldn't have taken it on without asking me. So anyway, we had a conversation about this whole thing and about the fact that, let's be polite, the money wasn't great. And, you know, I'm not a breadhead. I really am not. But, you know, you have to pay me something, like, oh, yes. like all of us, to turn up. And, you know, it was Scottish um, rehearsal rates, which are very, very poor in a, in a, in a, in a Scottish orchestra. Did they pay so, your, your transport? Well, I didn't know what was going on. Nothing was mentioned. Anyway, I rang and said, look, you know, you don't know me. We've never spoken. I'm really quite a nice chap, really, when you get to know me. <laughs> I am not someone that's going to throw my toys out of the pram and say, I want a thousand, thousands of pounds to do this job. But, you know, I can't do it for this money. She said, well, you haven't, you haven't really clock the way we do we totally understand with London musicians so this is what we do we have to pay you the BBC rates but this is what we're going to do for you first rehearsals Sunday the only required for one rehearsal on the Sunday 10 till 1 in, in Glasgow in our purpose-built rehearsal rooms but we're going to I'm going to say we don't know when we need you so we're going to pay you for three rehearsals because it might be 10 till 1 it might be 2 to 5 it's 6 to 1 so it's only one and it'll be in the morning, I'm telling you, but we'll pay you for three. I said, keep talking. I said, well, I don't think it's uh, fair to expect a musician to fly up in the early hours to do a whole day's work. 
So what we say is, I suggest that you, uh, you come up on the Saturday for which we'll pay you a day's work and we'll put you up in a hotel and we'll pay all your transport. So keep talking. And then um, you'll come back and then the rest is fine. Um, there'll be uh, the day with the TV show and the prom will be fine. Says, but of course, what I want you to do is to right now book a 15 pound EasyJet flight on Sunday morning to Glasgow and the money will be just great. Don't worry about it. This is how we do it. We have to pay BBC rates, but we, this is how we do it. I said, you're on. So that's what I do. And I fly up, get in a cab very early in the morning in Glasgow. I'm dropped off outside the rehearsal rooms. I go in, I tune up my little banjo and I sit there. The conductor comes on and it's a very special performance of um, Rhapsody in Blue. Um, it's a, a blind jazz pianist called Jason Roberts, who's absolutely, turns out, fantastic. He doesn't play any of the Gershwin cadenzas, he plays his own. So it's like a jazz performance of Rhapsody in Blue and the orchestra plays the original Ferdy Grolf um, arrangement. Yeah. But he just takes it out. And he's got Wynton Marsalis's uh, brother on drums, I think. And he's got a little trio. It's amazing, but we'll come to that. So I turn up, conductor mounts the podium, speaks to the orchestra, says, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. Um, Jason Roberts' plane has been delayed. We don't know when he's going to arrive. So I'll keep you posted, but what we'll do now, this is 10 o'clock, is we'll just go, you know it all anyway, we'll just go through the orchestral parts of Rhapsody in Blue, and hopefully he'll have turned up. So within 15 minutes, we've gone through everything that the orchestra played, because they played it a thousand times. And uh, at that point, someone whispers in his ear and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I've just been told Jason Roberts isn't even in the country yet. So I'm afraid we can't do any more, goodbye. And I've never seen an orchestra move so fast. It's now quarter past 10. <laughs> the hall is empty. And I put my hand up to this guy. I said, hi, um, we haven't met. I've just flown up from London to do this. Um, just thought I'd let you know. And are you saying I'm not required for the rest of the day? quarter past 10 in the morning. He said, what can I do? My hands are tied. I've rehearsed the orchestra. I can't do any more. They've gone. Sorry, you've had a wasted journey. I said, okay. I walked downstairs. The cab driver that took me there is still there. So he's, <laughs> that's how quick it's been. He's having a cigarette. He's talking to one of his mates. And I said, excuse me, you're doing anything? He said, no. I said, can you take me back to the airport? He said, it's a bit weird, isn't it? I said, yeah. Let's not discuss it. Let's not discuss how weird this is. Just take me back. Takes me back. I go to EasyJet reception, check in, and I say, this isn't going to work, obviously. You can't change my return flight, can you? She said, yeah, there's a plane going in. Well, it's going now, but if you, if you get a move on, you'll catch it. She changes my ticket with no charge. I leg it down to the airport. I get on the plane, and I'm home by midday. I haven't done anything. I went all the way to Scotland for 15 minutes. Absolutely. Anyway, it was worth it because it was a most fantastic concert, but you know, crazy now, stuff. I, I'm trying to get my head around banjo on Rhapsody in Blue. Is is there a banjo in the in the Oh in the yes, there is. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Right. Oh, and you have music. They gave you music, presumably. Oh yeah, I have the part. I've played it many, many times. I mean, oh, I, see. I have to say I have to say that um the, about the first 20 times I played it, I felt I couldn't play anymore and I ought to retire because I couldn't follow what was going on, no matter how much I concentrated. Right. Until I suddenly realized that any orchestra playing Rhapsody in Blue, they just play it. They just they play it and you just go with them. You yeah. forget about tempos, you forget about markings, oh, you forget right. about anything. They just do it. I mean, I, I came off... I never, never forget it. I came off stage this one time and uh, I was utterly depressed. And the girl behind me, I think she was the flute player, said, you're all right. You look really miserable. I said, I am. I can't play this. I thought I could actually play when I started being a musician. Right. I can't, I've never been able to play this. And she looked at me and she said, you're not following the conductor, are you? I said, yeah. She said, oh, my God. Don't ever do that. We, we know how it goes. We just play it. Sit with us. It'll be fine. And it was. Oh, right. dear, dear, dear. Fantastic. This is true. All of this is absolute truth. I wish I could tell you I'm exaggerating, but I am not. No, it's great. And you got paid. 
and I got paid. Oh yeah, I got paid. And I actually, for the first time in my life, understood what was going on. You know, there's a bit that goes da 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 Oh my God, what they they almost go twice as fast in the in the phrases. Right. Outside of that. I always used to get left at the starting post, you know. <laughs> what happened? Where, you know, who ordered the veal cutlet? What's happening? <laughs> exactly. And uh, after that, I was just fine. Oh, whatever. Bar lines mean nothing. Tempo markings mean nothing. This is how it yes. goes, apparently. I, I'm um, wondering, yeah. if, uh, speaking of orchestral things, I remember you told me a story once which also has stuck with me, which is, if I hope you remember it, that you were playing a session, and I do believe, I'm not sure that it was Streisand, but it might have been Streisand, where, where you heard the artist saying, what's that cheap sound? Oh, God, yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't know who it was. I don't think it was Streisand, but I know. No, but I do tell remember. the story because it just cracked me up when you. I, I can't remember. It's terrible. I mean, this is the trouble. Certain things that occur, you know, well, other people uh, remember well, them better than I. <clears throat> well, this one, I, I'm just maybe if I tell it a little bit, you'll remember. Yeah, maybe something, details. maybe something will occur but to me. You were doing this session and it was a big orchestral session for an important artist. And and, uh, it and, was the percussion. and it was the percussion doing something. It wasn't me. One of the not, percussion players was doing that. definitely. No, it was you. It was you because I remember your comment back. Mitch Dalton is rather famous for the dry, dry as the Gobi Desert comment, which which cuts like a like a scimitar. But it seems like those two things together: scimitar, desert. It's come on, give me give me yeah. a little. But yeah, anyway, very, very the artist also, said. You know, they said everything all right, so and so, whether it was her or not, and and she said, "Well, what's what's that cheap sound in there? What's that cheap sound?" And you said, apparently, that cheap sound is a uh, Gibson so and so guitar which costs three thousand dollars, three thousand pounds, and and a so and so amplifier which cost you know, and you listed all the all the expense uh, of all the instruments. That's what the cheap sound is. You know, you used to get that kind of stuff, actually, um, was most prevalent on commercials. Right. Because when you do commercials and jingles, to be absolutely fair to your client and, you know, the agency, you're dealing with some highly intelligent people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they were and, and where they are. And, uh, you know, they have the salary to justify it. But they know nothing about music. I mean, they absolutely know nothing about music. And, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not highly intelligent. It's just that, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread and all those other cliches. Yes. You do hear some extraordinary things. You really do. I mean, I do remember somebody coming in. They were very frustrated with the arranger or the composer. They couldn't get their point across. They came out to me and they said, if I have this noise in my head, can you play it? I mean, what, where do you go from there? You, you say know? yes. <laughs> well, you say yes, and, yeah. but you think, refer to a psychiatrist. Well, you know, what, and, what I usually did, and especially what I usually did in, in jingles, because uh, I probably produced about 150 of them, uh, you always get these crazy comments from clients. And, and I found that the only way with these people was to say yes, oh, I see what you mean, and then come up with something and say, man, that was a really good idea, George. Wow. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so, true. And then they accept it. Well, well, that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, um, you know, uh, useful psychology. I mean, if, if the idea is invented by the person or the client or the agency, um, or you manage to introduce the concept that it, although it wasn't, it was, then you're on a home run. But uh, if you start um, putting your own um, spin on it, you're in trouble. I do <laughs> oh, remember, certainly not. I, I do remember um, when the chain finally came off on one commercial and no one can blame him whatsoever. I turned up to do a commercial for Paul Hart, who, as you probably know, is a, is a genius. Yes, and um, uh, and it's not been unknown for me to be on my way home from a commercial before the commercial booked time had actually begun. If you, yeah. if you got there at 9.30 and the commercial was 10 to 11, you'd say, oh, we're not doing anything. Do you want to do it now? Then you can go. And 10 minutes later, you'd be finished 20 minutes before the start time and on, yeah. on the way home. But anyway, he was br just brilliant. So I walked in and I, he said, 
I said, what is it today, Paul? He said, oh, you'll be five minutes, you'll be done. He said, we've just got to do something that sounds uh, in the style of, uh, I heard you through the grapevine. I've written something. I've, I've, I've put the keyboard part down and I'll play bass with you with Brett Morgan on drums and we'll play to that and the click. We went in and there was just one client and he was sitting there and I knew there would be trouble because I could see the expression on his face. He really was, you know, hatchet faced. <laughs> and you could tell there was no sense of humor to be, uh, to be uh, encouraged at all. So we went in and uh, we play it down and we all march in. This is two minutes into the session. We walk in, it's done, perfect. And uh, Paul turns expectantly to the uh, client or the ad agency uh, emissary, I should say. The creative. Uh, the creative, yeah. And says, what do you think? And he just, he just, I remember it as if it were yesterday. He just said, doesn't sound like it through the grapevine. And Paul said, okay. We go back in the room and he says, Brett, do that. Mitch, just uh, change that one chord and I'll do this. Fine. Three minutes later, we're back in. What do you think now? And he says, uh, doesn't sound like I do through the grapevine. So at which point Paul said, okay, this is the problem. If I make it sound anything more like I heard it through the grapevine, that's what we in the business and the legal people call passing off, which is me attempting to persuade the listener that they are listening to I heard it through the grapevine when they're not. And that is... Um, unfortunately for you, um, a legal matter, and it can be very difficult. Now, when I say uh, it's a legal matter, the client won't get sued, the agency won't get sued, my company, German Co, won't get sued. I'll tell you who gets sued, Paul Hart, me, I get sued. So, you know, if you want I Heard You Through the Grapevine, I'm afraid you'll have to acquire the rights to use it which will cost you a few bob, but that's the sure way to get I Heard You Through the Grapevine. And the guy just, there was a pause, and he just said, all I know is, doesn't sound like I Heard You Through the Grapevine. At which point, Paul, he was, I remember, he was had a cigarette, and he just puffed on the cigarette and went, well, that's as far as I'm going, fucking mix it. <laughs> <laughs> and he walked out. <laughs> one of those special moments when yeah. finally the worm the worm turned yeah and you know what happened in the end he walked out and i remember who it was for i mean well, the product was it for comet comet discount warehouses and i saw the commercial a few days later and they didn't use any music at all none it was just where music might have been it was just silence so yes. there you go. That's yes. very funny. I, I had one of those on a commercial where, where I had, well, I had many record copy types of things that I did. Uh, but one of them, uh, it was, I can't remember what the tune was that we were trying to emulate. But, you know, the guy kept saying, it doesn't sound like we heard it through the grapevine, doesn't sound like it. And I said, okay, well, tell me this. Maybe it's the tempo. Can you kind of sing it the way you, you just, just hum it the way it is? Oh, sure. Baby love, oh baby love, oh. <laughs> he was he wanted a different tune, so uh, often, right? yeah. And, I, it can be very difficult, and of course you do get into the world of the surreal because when you're dealing with commercials, I mean you know, we all understand what it's all about. We're you know in the selling business, and that's that's all fine, you know, indeed. no problem with that. But you know when you do get to um, creative people who are literally selling toilet cleaner literally yes and the jingle itself the film consists of you know a young lady going into the small room of the house yes, yes. flying said product yes. lifting the toilet seat doing yes. what you do in a toilet and yes. flushing it it's not the stuff of um, you know dr shivago but no. it's <laughs> then you have a client and the director who's there and it's just, I remember this one, it's just so fantastic. You know, we need something. When she flushes the toilet, you need to catch that with the oboe. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just so surreal. You fantastic. Know. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. But um, hey, all in a day's work. Again, I will tell you uh, what to me is, uh, you know, a, a salutary lesson and how image in this game is, um, to certain people, is is hugely important to um and it actually outweighs everything else i got a call again from a contractor and say look, look uh, i don't know 
are you around, Mitch? I said, well, yes, I'm at home. How quickly can you get down to Dorking in Surrey? Well, that's the other side of uh, London from where I live. And uh, I said, well, it take me a couple of hours. I would have thought, what's the problem? He said, well, I'm doing a, um, we're doing an album um, with um, the comedian Jim Davidson, who yeah. I have to say in parenthesis, is not a bad singer at all, at all. And it surprised me, I can tell you. We're doing an album and we've got to the guitars and we're overdubbing all the guitars. And we, it hasn't worked out with this guitar player. I said, I see. So what makes you think it's going to work out with me? You know, he said, well, Greg Lake is producing it. And Greg Lake, for those of you who may not have heard of him, was a, a key third of the trio Emerson, Lake and Palmer, yes. who sold a squillion records, as you was know. was sandwich. Uh, indeed he was. He was the, uh, yeah, he was the, uh, the, the, uh, the mustard and pickle. Yes. But anyway, he was the bass player, wasn't he? Was he not, I seem to remember. He, yes. And um, the thing about Emerson, Lake and Palmer, as it transpired, I did not know this at the time, is that they're Jim Davidson's favorite band of all time. He has, he had them piled high in his Jag, one album after another, and that's all he ever listened to. He loved them, absolutely loved them. But that was all to come. So I said, well, look, you know, he said, oh, no, don't worry about it, come down, we'll pay you everything, pay you everything you want, it's not a problem, but if you can get down, that'd be great. If you can get down after lunch, and then it'll be two or three days, I should think, you know, I said, well, if it works out, but, you know, I mean, this guy is, this, you know, producer, you know, he's looking for obviously some sort of rock type, you know, guy, you know, and uh, I'm not a rock type guy to look at. You know, I don't look as if I could rip out a rock solo, but, you know, fine, whatever Although you want. you certainly can. No, 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 no. You just get your you just get your bottom down here and we'll take it from there. So I do. And it's Jim Davison's house, which is magnificent. And he's got a state of the art studio just outside it in an annex. And there we all are. And we walk in and I see Greg Lake to take one look at me. I see it in his eyes of utter disappointment. Who is this guy with glasses and uh, t-shirt and jeans? And uh, he doesn't look like Hendrix to me. And uh, I could just see it, you know? So I thought, oh, well, I don't care. I just, don't, I'm here, I'm being paid. They've sent one guy home already. Water off a duck's back, or as Tonya would have said, uh, yeah. water under a duck. I'll just, do, I'll just do it. I don't care. So I set up, and he comes in, and he looks disparagingly at my gear, and he says, what's that? I said, oh, that's a Paul Reed Smith electric guitar. Oh, I've never heard of that. So said, well, it's, I think it's good. <laughs> and what's that little lamb? What's that little lamb? You know, obviously something which wasn't an 8 by 12 cab, you know, yeah. turned up to 1,011. So I said, well, okay, what's the first first thing you want me to do he said well I've got this track here what it needs what it really needs it needs a big rock guitar solo in the middle of it you've got to come steaming in and give it one and uh, that's the first thing there's lots of different stuff and Jim Davidson's there he's in the control room he's sitting on the on the sofa reading the sporting life or whatever taking modest interest in the proceedings so there's a big window as is the convention between the recording area and the control room, it's a big window, and I can actually lip read what Greg Lake is saying to the arranger. I actually saw him do this. He turns to the arranger and he and I lip read, this isn't gonna work. <laughs> this is before I've played enough. <clears throat> of course. I actually saw him say that. Yeah. So, you know what? I just don't care. I said, okay. Uh, well, spool up to where you want me to come in. I don't need to listen to the rest of it. And I'll just listen to it a few times, two or three times, and then I'll play. And okay, put the light on, and I do it. And I thought it was pretty good, first take, you know. Um, as, as you would know, very important to get the first take because it, it can take you an hour and a half to get back to, to that again. Exactly. You know? The first thing comes out is very often the best. Indeed. Anyway, I thought, well, that's it. Now I can't go home now. I'll switch off and go home because he's going to send me home. So he, uh, the, the talk back goes down and said, that was good. Yeah, surprised. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, oh no, very, very surprised. Uh, that was good. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say really. Um, I said, well, I'll do another one. I said, actually, can I come in and listen to that? That was pretty good. I'll come in and listen to it. I said, look, there's two places that wasn't quite on the money. Let's do one more and then you can patch in between the two, you'll have it. And I'll pay, pay particular attention to those two little places as well. And I'm, I'm sure you can comp the thing which we do. 
So I go back in the control room. It's all over in about 15 minutes. And I said, what else you got? He said, uh, well, uh, I've got this thing, but it's totally different. I said, okay, well, what is it? He said, it's like a country thing, you know, Nashville kind of um, concept. I said, okay. So I get my Strat out and I've got, put the old compressor on and a volume pedal and, and I do that. And again, he goes, yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> And uh, I said, okay, well, thank you. And I uh, said, well, what's the next one? Said, well, the next one's completely different. It's almost jazzy, you know, it's like four in a bar and it's like this thing. So I do that and I get, then I get the, oh, that was good as well. <laughs> I go back in the control room. So I sit down, we said, we're taking a little break. I'm drinking coffee and he says to me, he said, do you know, you've come here and you've played like a rock thing and then you've played a country thing and then you've played a jazz thing and it's all, it's all good. And, uh, how do you play in all these styles? You know, how do you do that? I said, it's easy because I need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said to him, he, burst, he burst out laughing and it was absolutely fine from then on. But I mean, I was so close. I was that close before I'd even plugged the guitar in. I saw him say, this isn't going to work. Yeah. So that's what you're up against, you know. Yes. It is what yeah. you're up against. Especially in the wacky world of rock and roll, which is, of course, where Greg Lake spent most of his life, you know. Yes, indeed. You have to look and, a certain way. And I, I must say, I, I, that story gives me great joy because, you know, one of the things that people cannot understand is that somebody can be versatile. You know, they can't Absolutely. understand that you can play one style and play another style. Now, you are the quintessential, I would call you a professor of guitar styles. And, and, <laughs> and you, well, no, but I mean, you always, you always have been. And, you know, I think when we first met, one of the things that knocked me out, apart from your physical ability to play, was the fact that you understood, oh, if I want to get, as you described, okay, if I want a country sound, I'll get the Strat out, and I'll use the compressor, and I'll get this, and I'll do this, and it will be a country sound, and you were right, and then you you, you knew exactly, you were always fascinated by, by knowing the right equipment for the job, having the right tool for the job, and <clears throat> you were a master of that besides playing the goddamn guitar, which is, you know, it's, that's another thing, that's a whole other why, thing. Why is it that I never hired you as my manager? Well, I should have been your publicist. No, but and, absolutely. And you know, as while we're complimenting you, Mitch, I also have to say this is a blatant plug that I've just released an album that we did in 1981. Oh and, my goodness! Yeah. And when I found the tapes, I was completely blown away again by the unbelievable playing that you did on that on that record throughout on every track. I mean, it was just. He actually played that, I, you know, I, I was and I was there at the time and I know you and I know your ability, but it's just that you have this uh, kind of uh, attitude about it's you're not just playing a solo. I can hear it's your your diabolical mind working during the solo. OK, take that and then check this well, thing out. It was just well, so it's much. It, it's so pleasurable. Well, don't forget. Yeah, but don't forget, you have to, um, you can only cut your cloth, whatever the rest of the, uh, cut your suit according to your cloth, and you can yes. only respond to what's around you. And, you know, the, the fact is that when we met, you know, you pulled out this bunch of tunes, and boy, you know, that was such a, a pleasure to see these beautifully crafted tunes, again, in lots of different styles. Yeah. You know, and it was clear from bar one, note one, that this is a guy that can really do it. And it was tremendously inventive, highly musical, brilliantly creative, you know, so, you know, it's a great uh, opportunity, really. I just thought, oh, you know, I could really get my teeth into this. You know, you're not talking about a 12 bar blues or- No, exactly, exactly. And, and, so it, and, and so again, there was something, there was something for me to, you know, get stuck into, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, I think the first thing we ever did was Longview Farm where- That's right. You know, I said to you, I think I said to you, you know, this would be really good on the Spanish guitar, classical guitar, because it's Absolutely. although it's a which I hadn't thought rock. of. I had never thought of it. And, that that and when you played it, it was just magic. 
Well, the thing is that then, you know, he went on with those, those different tunes that you pulled out, which all had an appeal and they all had an opportunity to kind of put something creative in because it was there for you, you know, and um, yes. I'm really pleased, you know, that that's how we met. And uh, rather than, you know, turning up and there's the guy that's got a chord of C and a chord of F and nothing else. And as, you know, Mike Vat once said to me, you know, and I turned up at Lansdowne, he just turned around to me. I said, what, what is it that you want me to play today? He said, you're here to turn this into a hit record. Right. Oh, nice. right. No pressure, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I don't know whether you know this, but um, it's similar, but also different. But it, it reminds me of um, Duke Ellington getting dropped by his record company towards the end of his career. And he was invited down to the office and said, Duke, we're going to have to let you go. He says, why? Why? He said, you're not selling any records. And he said, oh, I thought that was your job. Yeah, I love that one. I love that one. I really love that one. Jeremy Lubbock said a very similar thing to me when I was interviewing him. He said, he said, you know, these, these record companies always want to come in with their two cents worth and tell us yep. why the music that we're making is uncommercial. And he said, I always thought that was your job to take the music from creative people who are musicians and then figure out a way to sell it. You're salesmen, you're not musicians, you're not creative people in that way, that's what you are. But, and and he said it in a rather uh, acerbic way, but nevertheless- I was gonna use the same word, he was brilliant. I loved Jeremy, I was very yeah. sad when he passed away. Very yeah. sad to hear of that. And, and I saw uh, him quite recently, I saw him recently at a, a, a George Benson concert, a very bizarre concert where they took out the first 20 rows of the stalls and put, um, uh, laid it out as if it was a function with tables and chairs, all beautiful, and served a four-course meal. And wow. I was invited to it. I was invited to it. So I, I had this meal. I was waited on hand and foot in the Hammersmith Odeon while George Benson was the cabaret on stage, ripping it out. But he was there. He was one of the guests, and I saw him. And uh, I'm not That's sure right. he, uh, he, he was quite elderly. This is very, very recently. I must yes. have been... A before he passed away. Yes, but, but you, he very, did, you, did you work with him on, on any projects? Yes, loads of projects, loads of things. Um, in fact, I worked for him, for him and his brother, which was the last right. time they, uh, did you know his brother? Um, yes, yes, indeed, John. John, he's, um, you know, he's a, a classical musician and a, a conductor and uh, he's made a, a career for himself, very good career. They're both very, very obviously incredibly talented, but uh, they did a joint project together and then recorded it at Air Lindhurst. And uh, I went Awakening. down and I played. That's it. Oh, you know yeah, it. And you, oh, you played on Awakening. Well, that was the last time I saw him. And um, I got a very nice letter from him and a Christmas card. And I, I framed the letter because he was very complimentary and, uh, you know, Take it when you get it, I say. Enough people want to uh, say the opposite. But he wrote a very nice letter saying, thank you very much for, for what you had contributed. And uh, he said, to be honest, I forgot how good you are. And yours sincerely, have a great Christmas and all those things. <laughs> so when I saw him, it was very funny because, you know, he was near the end of his life and um, he wasn't well. And um, I think he only just made it, you know, by the skin of his teeth to that, to that do. And he was with his brother and... Uh, I said to the, the people I was with, I must go and say hello because, you know, for old time's sake. So I did. And I'm fairly sure he didn't know who I was. And uh, But it was extremely funny as well, as well as poignant, because uh, we spoke about stuff. And I, I could, he was either faking it or it was coming back to him that I had done so many albums with him. I done, did an album with him for Kiri Takanawa and I did all sorts of things. Can't even remember how many of them. But and I said, and the last thing I did was the thing with your brother who was sitting there. And he said, oh, yes, that was great. He said, and then there's a sort of dim look of recognition in his eyes. And he said, yeah, you're, yeah, I remember you came and played. Then we went back to LA and replaced you with the real guy. <laughs> and his brother, <laughs> and his brother is going, no, no, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I mean, what I, when I left it, it sounded good to me. But yeah. uh, oh, it was so funny, you know. Well, actually, um, with his ex-wife, I am putting together a tribute to him where we've got Quincy and Shaka and lots of other people uh, giving right. 
doing tributes to him. So I'd, I'd very much like to use a little of this in it as well, because that's- that's uh... Be my guest. Now he was absolutely brilliant. And also, as you say, hilariously acerbic. Very. Hilariously acerbic. And, and the- uh... I won't remember the artist, but I remember coming to do some overdubs and it was at Abbey Road, Studio Two, and he was in the control room. And I remember him, he was sitting there with his uh, hand, head in his hands like this, and the nameless artist who is well-known was vocalizing. They weren't quite ready for me. And he just said, he turned around to me and said, Mitch, what have I got to do to get a fucking performance out of this woman? <laughs> it was, that's incredible. I thought, yes. what have I walked into here? You know, he shall remain nameless. Remain nameless. Okay. He shall remain nameless. Have you any more gems of, of uh, wit for us tonight? Oh, where do I begin? I mean, where do I end? Um, do I will you... tell you one, one very uh, memorable gig I did. There was a, a huge reception for Muhammad Ali. And it took place at the Grosvenor House Hotel in the Great Room, which is a great room. It holds about umpteen people, probably over a thousand people. And it was a, a celeb celebration dinner in his honor. I don't know what the occasion was, whether it was it timed to a biography or an autobiography or something, but anyway, it was a big, big deal. And they hired a band and um, they booked a singer called Sol Ray. Now Sol Ray was known as the, at that point as Britain's greatest Nat King Cole impersonator. And he was pretty good actually. He was pretty darned good. But unfortunately, um, a number of things occurred. We got there, we rehearsed, it's all fine, it was a big band. And uh, my friend John Altman was conducting the, uh, the band and it seemed to all go well in rehearsal. And that was it. And we went off and we had our dinner, which was beautiful and provided for us. And then um, it all started to unravel because the dinner went on for hours. Absolutely, I mean, it overran by, not minutes, it overran by hours. And after the dinner was over, I think, you know, we were supposed to be on about half past nine, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, the dinner wasn't even finished. And if, even then, after the dinner, there were the speeches and they were interminable. And this is the honest truth. I swear I saw, um, I think his name was Jack Solomons, the boxing promoter. I saw him fall asleep and his head dropped nearly into his soup. It was so long. Um, the great man himself spoke for at least half an hour. And so did the others. There were three or four of them. And I don't think we got on to London, nearly midnight. Anyway, so we go on, we're sitting there and there's no Sol Ray. So uh, we're looking around and we're trying to gesticulate, uh, trying to uh, figure out what's gone on. He was here this afternoon. Well, it became apparent what had happened. Uh, we struck up the band and we played the intro to um, whatever it was, some Nat King Cole standard. Um, probably, uh, Love, L-O-V-E, like a big band arrangement, and there was a 16-bar intro, nothing, no Sol Ray. So John goes, again, and we do it again and again. Still no Sol Ray, and at that point, the great man appears, and it became apparent very quickly why he wasn't with us, because he still wasn't with us. He had um, been enjoying himself during the dinner, um, and enjoying himself to the point where um, he really wasn't I'm afraid, capable of um, performing. So uh, it was just, well, it was absolutely brilliant because, you know, he came on, he launched into the first tune about 32 bars late, then he went to the middle eight, eight bars early, lost the band completely, and then gave it the big finish and stopped while the band was still playing the outro. And, you know, and then with sound of complete silence at the end, you know, the comedy, comedy gold, you know, nothing, like the producers after Springtime for Hitler, the, the audience just sitting there shocked. And then he turned round and he said, let's do Mona Lisa. And uh, John said to him, we haven't rehearsed it, got no chart, he said, Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, then I've told you. Thank you. And everybody's just, the band is just sitting there, nobody knows what to do. And there was another guitar player there who, who had forced his way into the band because He's a huge um, Nat King Cole fan, and his name was Ollie Halsell. He was a very good player, actually. Okay. Um, Left-handed left guitar player. But he kind of 
you know, he'd when he found that Muhammad, oh no, he was a Muhammad Ali fan. What am I talking about? It was a Muhammad I see. Ali fan. Okay. When he found out that Muhammad Ali was in town, he just had to be there. He for basically forced his way in, and that was fine. It was great. So he's sitting there, and this guy's launched into Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, da, 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 da. Ollie goes, I think it's in G. Clang G. I think it goes to A minor there. <laughs> and he just plays a few chords and basically saves the day. Without that, there would have just been nothing. Anyway, it's an absolute catastrophe. But um, the following week was the publication, uh, next publication of West Indian World, which I have a copy of, and various members of band made sure they got a copy. And it was front page news because it was Hamid Ali, Hamid Ali at the great room, Grosvenor House, huge reception, mega, mega do, all the rest of it. And uh, there's a photograph. And there's a photograph of John's back. And you see John just doing that, like, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> like that. And there's a picture of me, I'm dead center. And I'm like this, leaning back on my chair, laughing my head off. <laughs> and the rest of the band are in different stages of either exasperation, bewilderment, or amusement. So a classic photograph, and it's the front page of the, of the, uh, of the paper. Very, very funny. Fantastic. You, the, you know, when those things happen, you just don't know where to put yourself. You really don't. It's, it's a very strange experience. Indeed. Well, yeah. um, Mitch, I'm so happy that you had time to do this. Uh, <laughs> thank you for your great stories and uh, for your music and for your classes. We'll see you again, Mitch. You're very welcome. Okay. Lovely. Thank you Over and so out. much. All the best. Bye great. now. Radio Richard is a unique collection of my interviews with fellow creators, revealing not only how they do that voodoo that they do so well, but why. So please, like, share, subscribe, and donate, so I can keep this channel going and give you this great content. Radio Richard, be informed, be amazed, be inspired.